Welcome to New Books in East Asia. I just had the pleasure of talking with Michael Kivak about his book that's just come out with Princeton University Press called Becoming Yellow, A Short History of Racial Thinking. In the course of the interview, we talked about all kinds of things, but focused on the centerpiece of the book, which is an argument about the long process of transformation through which a perception of East Asian racial identity emerged over the course of the 18th and the 19th centuries. Now, in this book, as you'll see, Kivak does a great job of unpacking the ideas of a yellow and a Mongolian racial identity. He uses a really impressively broad range of sources from European literature and European history, and we talked about some common misperceptions in the history and practice of racial thinking about East Asia. He also had some great stories to tell. Hi, Michael. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us today, especially um, and absolutely especially given the time difference uh, between Ithaca and Taiwan. I really appreciate your being being willing to get up early and talk with us today. Sure, my pleasure. So for listeners at home, we're here today to talk with Michael Kivak about his new book, a really great book, uh, and that's called Becoming Yellow, A Short History of Racial Thinking, just out in 2011 with Princeton University Press. Uh, It's really not only a wonderfully rich and interdisciplinary story about the emergence of an idea of racial identity, it also happens to be uh, one of the most clearly written books that I've read in some time and very focused. So thank you very much uh, for talking with us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So Michael, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, your previous projects? Uh, Sure. I teach at National Taiwan University, and I've been in Taiwan since 1992. And when I came to Taiwan directly from graduate school, I was a comp lit person who was doing comparative studies in European literature. And coming to Taiwan really changed my research quite a lot. And I became very interested in contact between early modern Europe and the Far East. And so I was drawn to stories that seemed to give us an idea about what Europeans actually knew about East Asia. This is particularly before 1800. And so I've done a number of projects which explore the ways in which their knowledge of East Asia is quite different from knowledge we would have today. Mm -hmm. That a lot of the categories about what it means to come from another part of the world, to speak a different language, to be of another race, that all of these categories were quite fluid and rather different from the assumptions we make today about cultural difference or racial difference. Mm -hmm. And so Becoming Yellow fits into that larger project of uh, trying to get us out of our contemporary presuppositions about cultural difference or racial difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's, I think that really sets us up well for um, talking about this current project. But before that, just you, you've actually written about um, topics ranging as widely as Shakespeare before. Yeah, be- before I became interested in uh, Far Eastern studies, I, I wrote a book about Shakespeare and particularly his sexual reputation mm-hmm. in the centuries after his death. And so this I consider a kind of separate um, research part of part of my research life is something that I don't do anymore, but it did because that book also had to do with forgery and with uh, imitations and with impersonations. Uh, It does lead into um, the work on East Asian studies, but I do consider it rather separate. Mm -hmm. After that, I moved to a a study of the famous Formosan imposter called George Salmanazar. Mm -hmm who pretended to be from Taiwan in the very early 18th century. And he came to London in 1702 or 1703, and he claimed to be a native of Taiwan. And in fact, he was probably from France. He probably had blonde hair. (laughs) So uh, it's something of a a mystery or a source of comedy for us today. How could he get away with this? How could people really believe he was Taiwanese? But in fact, he had no problem in uh, um, creating this impersonation. Mm -hmm. 
And I think <clears> that <throat> even though it's a different project, that background and being so fluent and familiar with uh, sources of European history and European literature really yes. adds a, a richness to, um, to this book. And so I think that's, uh, that's really a strength. Yeah, because I do, I approach the subject not as a Sinologist, not really as an East Asianist, but as a Europeanist. And that's, that's where my strength lies mm-hmm. this but particular it, subject. But it's still very firmly part of East Asian studies and East Asian history. Um, so bravo. So how yes. did, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this particular project? Well, this uh, was something that had long been in the back of my mind when, uh, because we, of course, we take it for granted that the idea of yellow as a um, racial term is a, is a racial slur and something that is offensive to uh, East Asian people. And, of course, living in an East Asian country, I, I hear this and very sensitive to it. And like many people, I wondered exactly what the source of that color term was. Mm-hmm. So um, it's something that was in the back of my mind during previous projects during the book about Salmanazar, also during the book after that, which is about the Western reception of the Nestorian monument, mm-hmm. I was um, confronted by a certain body of prejudice or prejudicial writing about East Asia. And, of course, yellow comes into, comes into play there, too, and you see it. But anyone who has actually done work in early modern European sources will immediately notice that before the 18th century, whenever an East Asian person is described by a traveler, by a missionary, by an ambassador from a European country, that these people are always described as white. Mm -hmm. And this goes back even earlier to the narratives of Marco Polo in the 13th century and other missionary friars. Whenever the color of a Chinese or Japanese person is mentioned... Mm-hmm. And it often isn't, but whenever the color is mentioned, they are always called white. <clears throat> so we wonder, I wonder, then where does this notion of yellowness originate? Where does it come from? It's something that isn't there from the start. Mm-hmm. So not only are they called white, but they are often uh, called as white as we are. That's right. actually a quote from a number of sources. And it seems to me that when you when you say that, you, there's a, a number of implications involved, as white as we are, a number of uh, of assumptions about not only about the difference between peoples, but about the way that Europeans looked at potential trading partners or potential converts to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I also I see that whiteness. Um, I also think you need to read the tone of those kinds of reports. And I think that's frequently missed in previous scholarship. When, when they're described as white, it seems to me it's with a certain level of surprise and also with a certain level of satisfaction that, um, or if that's, may, perhaps that's not the best word, because it, after the 13th century, the, when Europeans went to China or Japan, they used the sea route. So they went south of Africa, south of India, coming into the Indian Ocean through what is now Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and then coming up into the South China Sea to southern China, to Taiwan, going north to Japan, so that the people they would meet along the way would almost uniformly be of darker complexion than they were Mm -hmm. until they reach the Indian Ocean and they come into... um, Southeast Asia and then into East Asia, Northeast Asia, then they realized that the people there were not darker than they were. So that there is a certain um, surprise, I think, that didn't expect them, the people that they met, to uh, look this way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important aspect of, this, of seeing that they were, in European eyes, as white as they were. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it puts them on the, in, in the European eyes, it puts them on the same level, in a sense, as they were, at least in terms of their color. We also have to remember that color terms are not just descriptive, but they're always evaluative in nature. So that to call someone white was not just a, a, a descriptive term, but it was a way of, of 
in sort of improving the status of these people, that these people are white like us. They are cultured. They are civilized. They are literate. They have a sophisticated uh, religious system and so on. Mm-hmm. And that they can potentially be converted into European Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, this is such an interesting part of the book because this really, and now I guess this is a, a great time to turn um, directly to the book itself. This is really um, part of what seems to me to be a larger argument that you're making in the book, um, really taking, um, taking apart this idea of a racialized yellow East Asian identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the, the story begins in the introduction um, with a actually a very aptly um, titled ch- chapter, given uh, your, what you've just uh, shared with us, called No Longer White, the 19th right. Century Invention of Yellowness. And this yeah. really um, this is a chapter that really lays out the major argument of the book and um, but also introduces readers, I think, really well to the very wide range and unusually wide range of sources for a book about East Asian studies. Um, that you brought to bear in the course of writing it. So can you talk a little bit about um, this larger argument of the book and this sort of um, what in, in broad terms you're trying to use the book to say about the idea of yellowness? And then we'll sort of go into the more detailed um, elaborations of that sure. afterwards. Uh, well, if we go back to uh, what I just said about the idea of seeing these people as white and being mm-hmm. rather surprised or happy about it, that anyone who continued their reading trying to collect eyewitness reports or uh, missionary reports or ambassadorial chronicles of these people, that at some point they lose this quality of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And they are described as being a huge variety of other shades. It would depend on which language you were reading it would be something that when it got translated from one language to another would slightly alter, partly because color terms in different languages uh, have different functions and encompass different kinds of color, kinds of things. You might use a certain word, for example, in French that you wouldn't use the precisely the same word in Italian or in English. So there is a tremendous uh, fluidity or flexibility as to exactly what color these people were. But clearly, they were no longer white. It becomes more and more unusual if you encounter any eyewitness description in which East Asians are called white. So something is happening. And like all researchers, I, in trying to find the source of this, in fact, it was kind of a dead end. There seems to be no single explanation that you can point to for as to why these people darkened Mm -hmm. as it were in the eyes of Europeans and certainly no moment at which they become yellow. Mm -hmm. There's, if you want a kind of fitful progression toward yellowness at a certain point, it becomes accepted and repeated ad infinitum by, by everyone. But uh, there's, in fact, it's a dead end. You cannot, in my eyes, find a source for yellowness. Mm-hmm. And I see this, actually, this book, in this sense, as a corrective, because no one has ever really bothered to find out what the source might be. There are lots of assumptions about where it might come from, uh, which are mostly either historically inaccurate or just uh, there's no proof or no basis for it. So the first chapter... The introduction um, um, before they were yellow. I'm sorry. Is that the title of the introduction? No longer white. No longer white. No longer white. The it, it traces this uh, a couple of examples of yellowness as a new idea, mm-hmm. specifically in the 19th century, because um, I, I cannot point to a source a single source, but I can point to a couple of examples in which yellowness appears to be a new category. Mm-hmm. And that's the best we can do. Um, are, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. No, these are actually uh, some really fascinating examples as well um, that I would love to hear more about. <laughs> this is, are well, you? The, I mean, I, so I'm saying that we start with this idea of whiteness mm-hmm. and then several hundred years later, there is an idea of yellowness, right. but I don't know what comes between. Right. Right. I, that's something that that no one I think has been able to find. Yeah, the the there are two examples. One is from a 
passage in Dante, mm-hmm. and the other is from a um, a series of paintings in an, a tomb of an of an Egyptian pharaoh. And these indeed seem rather remote or far fetched ideas, but they're uh, they're chosen because I'm trying to show the way in which this idea of yellowness pervades every aspect of 19th century culture. It's not something that only comes from descriptions or narratives about travel to East Asia or encyclopedias about East Asia, but it comes from surprising sources. And what happens in the Dante passage is simply that toward the end of his poem, towards the end of the Inferno, we meet Satan Mm -hmm. and he is described as having three faces and each face has a different color. And if you look at the history of commentary of Dante's poem, um, it's regularly described as a, an allegorical uh, meaning that if Satan has three faces, it's because the, the, the colors represent different aspects of his character or different sins. But that in the 19th century, someone comes up with a new idea. Maybe the three faces of Satan are colored because they represent different parts of the world. And this was a new idea in the late 18th, early 19th century, and that's why it doesn't occur until that time. And so this particular reader, an Italian reader, he posits that one of the faces might be yellow. Actually, the poem says between white and yellow. It doesn't say yellow as such. This reader posits that perhaps that represents the face of Asia because people in Asia are that color. He says that quite matter-of-factly. And I see this as quite an amazing statement. It's something that would never have been made in an earlier period. We recall that when Asians were described, they were not called yellow. They were called white. Mm -hmm. So that this is a marker of some shift. And it's matter-of-factness, it seems to me, indicates that it's something you could take for granted. Everybody knows that people in Asia are this color. This is the assumption that lies behind that. And I see this as a perfect example of the, the point at which we had arrived. Now Asians are yellow. Now I have to point out that there's a problem about what we mean by Asia. Right. Including this Italian commentator. when He, he doesn't say the people of China or the people of Japan are yellow. He says people in Asia. And Asia is a very large category, <laughs> which is anything east of Israel, anything, or you can include the Middle East as well. Mm-hmm. So um, there, in addition to this idea of yellow as a new term, there, we, we also have to be careful about when the term becomes focused on East Asia rather than on Asia as a whole. And so there's a subplot in the book, if you will, mm-hmm. about how, how that, how the image of yellowness becomes more and more focused on East Asia rather than Asia as a whole. That's right. I think that comes out very clearly um, in the book. And in fact, I think one of the things that it really um, urged me to think more carefully about as I was reading this kind of incidentally um, was also uh, at the same time as this idea of yellowness and this idea of um, sort of a yellow racial identity is changing and emerging. There's along the the same lines, there's also an idea of East Asia. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, that's also a kind of construction that emerges over time. So, right, yeah. So the introduction simply points out. Uh, I mean, the uh, the Egyptian tomb painting is a similar story that people see. It's it, it happens to be a series of paintings in which Egyptians are illustrating different tribes that they either have conquered or have been at war with and that they represent different parts of the world as it was known to Egypt. And these particular faces are shown with varying colors. And there's also a moment, again, at the very same, in the very same period, the end of the 18th century, when one of these groups is called Asians and described as having yellow faces. And that this was, again, used as a kind of self-evident or self-explanatory idea that, in fact, the people of Asia are yellow. So they, they, these two examples, um, I think, prove much the same point. But so the, the introduction is meant to show that something happens, mm-hmm. but it leaves us in a state of, 
uh, of not knowing what happens or not understanding what happens. We know that something happens. So um, it then turns to various kinds of eyewitness description in chapter one to see if we can find a source when we look at the this long history of descriptions of the region. That's right. And I think uh, another thing I really appreciated about this, and I should also mention for listeners that there are just some wonderful um, reproductions of those um, images from the Egyptian tomb in the book that I, I would direct um, the listeners' attention to. But uh, what I really love about these two examples is that before we as readers are launched into unpacking the history of this idea, you're using these examples to really make, as I saw it, um, at least this is what happened for me, make the point that the idea that color should be something that's used to think about and to identify people is not at all something that we should take for granted either, that this itself is a concept that has a very particular history, right? Yeah, and it's also a Western concept. There is, there is, to my, in my understanding, at least in Chinese and Japanese traditions, no such idea. There are, there are moments when people might be described. There are different uh, associations between colors and people. But the idea that you would, as it were, map the world and apply each group with a particular color and a different color is something that's completely alien to uh, the Chinese and Japanese traditions. It's something that really comes from the West, this particular kind of racialization. And I think that's important, uh, an important thing for us to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So after you've done this great job of setting up uh, the, really the premise of the book and given mm-hmm. us these examples, we turn to um, these uh, East Asians and early travel and missionary reports. So this is the Before They Were Yellow chapter, chapter one. Yes. Right. Um, and we've you've already talked a little bit about this. This is the chapter uh, where you talk about these eyewitness reports. And mm-hmm. um, but can you talk a little bit more about what's going on in this chapter? And also, mm-hmm. if you could um, just spend a little bit of time um, for those of us who don't usually work with these kinds of sources, talk about what the research process for this was, because you're covering such a huge mm-hmm. range of eyewitness reports, and it's a really right. Yeah, fascinating set of Well, this was, uh, this was in some ways the mo- one of the most difficult parts of the book. Um, I did what I think anyone would do when faced with this question, which is just to collect every reference, every description you can find mm-hmm. about China and Japan. I, I, I pinpointed the book to speak specifically about China and Japan. I could have talked about other parts of Asia as well. For example, I neglect Korea entirely. I mean, it was somewhat arbitrary. I was only interested in China and Japan. And I started by um, looking at everything I could think of and also by using work, previous work of other scholars. This, this is not the very first um, book. No, it is the first book, but it's not the first treatment of this issue. There was a very good essay published in German in the early 1990s called How the Chinese Became Yellow in German, which gave a, a basic catalog of many of the Chinese sources that I sources about China that I use. And I also had to um, investigate the Japanese sources, and there were some um, excellent resources for that too. And I added to that basic um, um, stockpile of material just other things that I found. And I just looked at every description that was available in every language that I could get. Mm-hmm. And I found that, uh, as I said, that there is a general darkening of these people in these descriptions and that they fitfully start to become yellow by the early 19th century. And the idea behind this chapter was to create sort of a barrage of sources for the reader to show how many different opinions they are, how these opinions conflict, how there is no agreement about what these people look like and specifically what their color might be. And to, uh, to show that, in fact, trying to find the source of yellowness in eyewitness accounts is not going to get you anywhere. You're not going to find the source by doing that. So the first chapter is a dead end. And, it, it, it tries to, to encourage the reader to understand that this is not the way to find the answer. This is not the source of yellowness. It does not come 
from travelers to East Asia. And I think that's a, a crucial thing for readers to understand. And I think that most people don't understand that. Most people, when they, when they think of the source of yellowness, they assume that it comes from travel reports. There's a related idea, as most of your listeners will know, that yellow has a very important function in Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. As a central color, the color of the emperor, the color of the yellow river, and so on. And so I also began this project by wondering whether some traveler to China, when he learned about this color term in the Chinese tradition, perhaps he misunderstood it or misrepresented it and somehow changed it into some idea of this is the culture where people like yellow or the culture of yellow people in the sense of people who privilege the color yellow. And I wondered, maybe that's the source. Maybe that it, it, this got twisted or mistranslated or misunderstood, and it became a description of the people. But in fact, um, my research showed that there is absolutely no connection between the Western racialization of people and yellowness in the Chinese tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's also very important. I think some people have made that mistake by because they assume that yellowness stems from the importance of yellow in China. But I'm sorry, that's not the answer either. There is absolutely no connection. I see that as nothing more than a remarkable coincidence. Mm-hmm. And you talk a little bit about that, um, the kind of construction or perhaps the false construction of that tradition or that idea of a connection between traditions at the end of the book as well, I thought. Right. Right, that was really right. interesting. <clears throat> so it, you made you describe this as kind of a dead end, <laughs> but right. I think one of the really important things that this first um, chapter, this chapter one, does is to demonstrate that the history of yellowness is also about whiteness, right? Oh, definitely. That these, so I think it it actually, um, at least for me as a reader, it certainly wasn't a dead end <laughs> in that respect. Um, okay. I think, so I think um, that's a really important part of of this debate that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, well, there's also the question of um, the in-between colors between white and black. We have to remember that in the European or the Western imagination, the idea of themselves as white and other people as darker, for especially Africans, mm-hmm. goes back to the beginning of the Christian tradition and before. So there is a white-black dichotomy in place for a very long time. But when... Europeans began to meet people from other parts of the world who were neither black nor exactly white like they were, Mm -hmm. then there was a problem about exactly how to term these people. What color are they? How, how do we, what do we call them? And the closest analog, and I think a lot of uh, your listeners may know, will be the idea of American Indians, Native Americans as red. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the invention of redness, and there's been a lot of work on this, actually comes at the same time as, as the invention of yellowness. Mm-hmm. And so they, they are parallel developments, but, but there are also some very major differences between the invention of redness and yellowness. Um, and I talk about that uh, in the book a bit. Um, there, there are different kinds of sources, different kinds of explanations for redness in European eyes. But there are no such explanations for yellowness, in my opinion. There, mm-hmm. So I, I find this um, a revealing notion because this yellowness really appears to come from nowhere. I, 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 don't, I cannot find a single um, um, reason why these people should be called yellow. And I don't think it's good enough to say, well, their skin looks yellow and therefore travelers or other people said that they were yellow that's that that just doesn't um that the, the sources do not show that so uh, perhaps this is a you know, it's a bit of a digression but the the idea of redness is a kind of parallel to the idea of yellowness mm-hmm. and, and that actually leads us really nicely to the next chapter um, chapter two, Taxonomies of the Yellow. Um, now right. this, this is actually a particularly good chapter and a really great moment um, for illustrating the relevance of your work and of this book, um, not just to scholars of East Asia, but also to scholars of the history of science and medicine. Right. Um, right. 
So can you talk a little bit about, um, for our listeners, the importance of Linnaeus, first of all, to this story? Because I think that's going to be um, a surprising, you know, sort of entry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that many readers would expect uh, just an extended version of Chapter 1 in the book or something. But, in fact, what I try to demonstrate in this book is that the source of yellowness is not to be found in narratives in descriptions of the place it comes from the world of science mm-hmm. the idea of yellowness comes not from an eyewitness perception of people it comes from a, a desire in science to differentiate people and that's a very very different idea so we have to abandon our um, ideas that Yellowness will come from reading enough source material about travelers because it comes not from a description but from a racialization or a construction of racial categories in the world of science. And it begins in the world of what we should call, I guess, taxonomy. Mm -hmm. That there was a, a particular desire in the early 18th century, and here's how the way Linnaeus comes in, Linnaeus, as um, many of your listeners will know, was was interested in providing a taxonomy of the entire natural world in which the entire natural world would be divided into categories of genus and species and so on. And that in the same way that you could classify animals or classify plants or classify flowers, you should also be able to classify human beings. So that human beings becomes... Um, the object of classification in the same way that any other living thing would. So in the same way you you could talk about breeds of animals or kinds of monkeys, you can also talk about kinds of human beings. So Linnaeus, uh, at first, in the the first edition of his um, attempt to systematize the world, it's called Systema Naturae, or Systems of Nature, appeared in 1735, and he divides human beings into four groups. And he um, gives geographical and color labels to each of these groups. And so the the genus Homo is divided into four groups, um, including Homo Europaeus, European man, Homo Americanus, American man, Homo Asiaticus, Asian man, and Homo... Africanus, um, African man. So he begins with this by now somewhat standard division of the world into these four areas, continents, if you want to call it. But he also assigns a color to them, which is somewhat surprising. Perhaps we don't, uh, this doesn't really come from any um, particular tradition that I know of, but he, he, assigns a color for each of these groups, and the color in Latin that he assigns to Asian man is fuscus. Fuscus is a Latin word that would best be translated as dark. So he decides on a color. I mean, Europeans are white, Americans are red, Africans are black. These were the stereotypical images of these people by the middle of the 18th century, But Asians, I think he has a problem with, doesn't really know what to call them. And so by giving him this word fuscus, I see this as a rather vague term. What do you mean dark? I mean, the other terms are a particular color, red, white, black. But fuscus is not a particular color. So I think this is important to show that when the idea of Asia becomes of interest in taxonomy, interest in the world of science that they don't really know what color to call them. So we're still in this kind of vague area of, well, they're not white, but we don't know what they are. So Linnaeus, but Linnaeus was in, very influential, and he, over the succeeding decades of his life, he repeatedly edits and expands the Systema Naturae until the definitive edition comes out in 1759, The original edition is very brief. It's just about 10 pages of tables. But by 1759, it's this gigantic two-volume set. And we also see 
that the color terms have been altered, that Asians specifically are no longer called fuscus, but now they're called luridus. The Latin word luridus is close to the English word lurid. Mm-hmm. And it can also be translated in a number of ways, luridus. It, it, it's generally a kind of pale yellowish shade. Mm-hmm. And Linnaeus never actually explains why he changes that color term, why it starts out as fuscus and turns into something else. And luridus is also, uh, in some ways, a vague term. If Linnaeus wanted to say yellow, there are plenty of Latin words he could have chosen that mean yellow, but luridus is not exactly a yellow. It might suggest a a yellowness, but it's still a little bit vague. Mm -hmm. So I'm... um, But I do see this as something closer to a source for yellow than the travel texts. Although it's still not exactly clear what Linnaeus is thinking of, where he is um, getting his information, we we do see a more traceable um, progression to yellowness by looking at his work. That's right. And Linnaeus is actually one of two major characters in this chapter. This is, um, here's where we also get introduced to um, a character who is going to reverberate throughout the rest of the book and really throughout the rest of this story, and that's um, the late 18th century figure, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. Right. Now, this is um, this is a figure that you say both uh, provides perhaps our first unequivocal source for the idea of a yellow East Asia, but right. also um, was responsible for inventing or introducing sort of the other part of this story that you're telling that we haven't yet talked about, which is the idea of a, a racial category of the Mongolian. Right. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about that, about the, sort of the importance of the idea of right. the Mongolian? Well, this is the second uh, important thesis of the book. The first thesis is that yellow comes from nowhere. Yellow is not traceable as an objective description. Uh, There's a gradual movement toward yellow, that yellow comes from science. But the second important thesis is that it's only when Asians are lumped together into a racial category that the color term is applied. Mm -hmm. The color term does not come first the racial category comes first. The notion that you can group together all the peoples of Asia into one, um, I don't know what to call it, one group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Blumenbach is one of the early taxonomers, early natural scientists. He's also a physician like Linnaeus, who is most interested in, as it were, racializing the world, dividing the world into clearly defined groups. So he follows Linnaeus, but he is even more specific, not only in that for him, they are yellow, and he is the first actually to use not only a Latin word, but in clarification, he gives the English word yellow to make sure that we understand this is the color that he means. Mm -hmm. Instead of these vague Latin terms, which can be used in many different um, contexts and, and, and are often very fluid, he, in order to clarify it, gives the English word yellow. Mm-hmm. This does not occur until 1795. And even in earlier editions of Blumenbach's work, it doesn't appear. So this is something very new. But I'm also arguing that we have to understand that it's not simply that we found an answer. Here is yellow for the first time. Mm-hmm. But that Blumenbach has simultaneously created racial categories for the world. The most notorious is the term Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Caucasian does not originate with Blumenbach, but he is the first one really to, to canonize or popularize this. And at the very same time that he invents this word um, Caucasian, he also invents the term Mongolian. So that there's uh, an interesting, um, there's a moment at which two things occur. One is that Asians are yellow, unequivocally yellow, mm-hmm. and also that they are part of a race called Mongolian. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that in order to, to really understand the way that yellow develops as a term 
in the world of science, we also have to focus on this category of the Mongolian. And that's why I spend so much time talking about um, the invention of this new racial category. And it plays itself out in, in, in many ways, in, particularly in the world of anthropology and in medicine during the 19th century. That's right. So let's actually um, talk about that a little bit because you, the, the next part of the book really takes this um, late 18th century context where this idea of a, a racial identity of the Mongolian is emerging and really mm-hmm. looks at the ways in which technologies of measurement Right. In the context of anth- uh, sort of early anthropological science, are really codifying um, this idea of uh, a Mongolian identity. Yeah. And there's some really fascinating um, sources that you use in this chapter too. So, um, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in the context of 19th century anthropology um, when this this change is occurring? Well, anthropology, as uh, I think a lot of anthropologists are less than willing to admit. During the 19th century, was an, uh, a virulently racist or racializing science. Anthropology and racism, in some sense, are the same in the 19th century. And now the early anthropology was interested in finding ways of um, measuring the differences between the races or between people in different parts of the world. And so they spend a lot of their time um, in working out, inventing, developing instruments of measurement. Um, This later, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, became more focused as something called physical anthropology. But in the 19th century, it was standard anthropology. So there were many kinds of measuring instruments that were developed, uh, and that anthropologists in their field work would go to different parts of the world and they would measure the bodies of their subjects. Mm-hmm. And they would compile this information and, and have various kinds of conclusions that they would draw from this material. And so because of the uh, relatively new obsession with racial color, someone also wondered whether it would be possible to measure color. Mm-hmm. It's a very odd idea, but um, there was something that was seen as a pressing need. We need, they said, we need to collect data. We need to have information about other peoples of the world in order to understand um, the human race and its different variations. Therefore, we also need to measure color. So they developed a number of different instruments for doing so. Mm-hmm. And it began by um, um, uh, the 19th century French anthropologist Paul Broca, who's most famous uh, as the um, in the book Broca's Brain, but he was very well known uh, during his own time for measurement. And one of his um, forms of measurement was to measure color. So what he did is he took um, uh, a piece of um, cardboard and he on it they lithographed um, different colored rectangles that the anthropologist was supposed to hold up this card to the skin of the subjects that he was measuring, and each of the colors had a number. So that when the anthropologist found a match, the closest match between the colors on the card and the skin of the subject, he would write down this number. And it was a way of providing an international standard for color terms. In other words, it was a kind of scientific um, giving a kind of exactness to color terms. Let's do away with these vague descriptions of what color people are. Let's actually quantify it. Let's give it a number. There's a great, um, there's actually a great quotation you have in this book um, by somebody who's describing the use of Broca's color chart to measure. And I'm just going to read it very briefly for listeners because it's amazing how how much this quotation just shows how objectifying this was. This yeah. is by um, someone named Edward Tyler in 1881, and he says, The traveler, by using Broca's set of pattern colors, records the color of any tribe he is observing with the accuracy of a mercer matching a piece of silk. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's, it's a, it, an amazingly telling um, <laughs> comparison there, I think. Yeah, really. I mean, there's, there's lots of interesting... Uh, points about that particular sentence that I actually don't go into. I mean, why, for example, compare skin to silk is, exactly. is an interesting idea. It's something I don't really um, 
pursue. But yes, it was it was seen as the, this idea of matching color was seen as a great advance in anthropology. But of course, the problem with um, using a card is that well, there are lots of problems. I mean, um, with with uh, trying to use this as a scientific form of measurement. Uh, many issues having to do with the the uh, the fact that the colors change as the card is uh, subjected to heat or humidity, or if the card becomes dirty. Which part of the body do you measure? Which part of the person is it a is it a part of his or her skin that's exposed to the sun or not exposed to the sun? Mm-hmm. There's also a question of color perception. That the color that I see is not the same as the color the person next to me sees. There are plenty of problems with this kind of procedure, but rather than throwing it out as ridiculous or comical, um, succeeding generations of anthropologists tried to improve upon it and find even more um, scientifically exact forms of measurement. Mm-hmm. So the card was was popular at a time, but then it gave way to other kinds of uh, measurement devices. Like this color uh, top? Like yeah. A, it's amazing. <clears throat> That's also a you know a, a very peculiar part of the story. It was actually a, a child's toy that was invented by Milton Bradley or developed by Milton Bradley. I mean, color tops had been in use for some time in uh, 19th century experiments with color perception. But Milton Bradley, who we know is the um, king of board games, <clears throat> the inventor of board games, when, when early in his career, he was interested in childhood education. And in order to teach children the... Uh, fundamentals of mixing color, he developed a color top. It's a small spinning top made out of cardboard. And on on this top, you could attach colored discs. And you could actually lock the discs together so that different amounts of different colors were exposed on the top. And then when you spin it, the colors would blend into a single color. And this was picked up amazingly, picked up by anthropology as a potentially uh, better way to measure skin color. If we could um, alter the colors on this top and then spin it next to the skin of a person we were measuring, it would actually be more more specific and more reliable than Broca's color chart. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely ridiculous story. I mean, this is a five and dime Toy that was sold in, in Woolworths for children, but anthropologists would buy them by the, you know, by the case and actually carry them with them into the field and use them uh, to measure color. So, I mean, the, it's, these are very entertaining stories because they, they seem so ridiculous, but the, but the point of this is to show that, uh, and it's, it's a complicated and long story, but it's to show that because the idea of yellowness was already in place in the mind of these anthropologists, when they actually began to measure Asian people, they turned out to be yellow. Mm-hmm. And this is not because they were really yellow, but because they, the, the, the idea was already in place so that the measurement merely confirmed what the anthropologists had already assumed. And I tried to show this in, in a number of ways. Um, when I look at this anthropological material. Mm-hmm. That's right. And if, um, because we've spent so much time talking about the color, um, whereas this chapter really looks at the importance of the emergence of a racial identity um, and uh, sort of a, a Mongolian racial identity by looking at the color, um, right. or the importance of color technology, um, then you spend a chapter t- looking at the other side of this really important um, pair of theses that you've been talking about, which is the emergence of an idea of um, sort of a Mongolian or Mongolism or Mongolian identity in medicine and Mongolism right. and um, the Mongolian eye, the Mongolian spot, and the, the idea of a Mongoloid um, way of describing uh, what later becomes known as Down syndrome. Yeah. Right. Well, in the same way you can measure color from perspective of anthropology, um, there was also an important influence in the 19th century with um, identifying or describing the Mongolian race uh, in, in medical terms. And it's perhaps not so much focused on yellowness as it is, as you, as you say, it's focused on Mongolianness. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think it's very important for us to pay heed to this material because it helps to 
codify the, the racial category. And so there are th- at least three uses of the term Mongolian in medicine. And these terms still exist today, although they're frowned upon. One of them is the so-called Mongolian eye, which um, is also known as an epicanthus and is still um, an ophthalmological category. And still, uh, and today, many people in, in East Asia actually have operations to remove or alter um, this so-called Mongolian eye. It's a, a fold of skin that appears in the corner of the eye next to the nose. And this was, strangely enough, referred to as a Mongolian eye, not just a particular condition of an eyelid, but something that was identified with a racial group, Mongolians, and that uh, it was thought of as something that only this race had, (laughs) which of course is not true, but it was something that was identified uh, racially. And the second term is a so-called Mongolian spot, um, which is uh, colored pigment spots that appear in the lower back of babies. And it was perceived at at first as something that would only appear on East Asian babies or Mongolian babies, as it were. Um, And so I talk a lot about, uh, about the development of this as a category and the prejudices that were involved Um, in 19th century medicine in trying to explain why these spots appear. The last example is Mongolism, which is now known as Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is, was when it was first discovered was associated with the Mongolian race in very interesting ways. So there's three um, examples of medicine's uh, attempt to, to reinforce the racial category known as Mongolian by finding medically identifiable conditions that supposedly only apply to this race and not to other races. Mm-hmm. And so as, as we actually come to the end of the book, um, which is also a very powerful chapter, what happens to this idea of Mongolism or the Mongolian or Mongoloid is that it goes from being a, a kind of condition to being something that's actively threatening. Yes, um, And this is the sort of culmination of the story where you're talking about um, the idea of a yellow peril um, as, and a yellow East Asia at the end of the 19th century. Now, really, in many ways, the centerpiece of this chapter and one of the most striking um, parts of this that I think our readers left with is this image, um, which is an engraving from Harper's Weekly. Uh, it's uh, from end of the 19th century, done after a drawing by Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit um, about this image and its importance to this larger argument um, and, uh, yeah, significance yes. to your story? Well, um, Kaiser Wilhelm, um, as a le- the leader of Germany in the late 19th century, uh, was particularly um, frightened by recent events in the Far East and specifically by events in Japan. At the end of the 19th century, Japan had defeated both China and Russia in wars and was perceived as a threat to the West, perceived as an incipient empire. And in in fact, they were taking territory. They took Taiwan in 1895. They occupied Korea and other parts of East Asia. So they were seen as a threat to the West. So Wilhelm was rather obsessed with this idea So he commissioned one of his favorite artists to make an engraving based on a drawing by Wilhelm himself. And that is what was published in Harper's Weekly and published very, very widely throughout the world. Mm -hmm. After that, it became a a kind of canonical image that was everywhere. And it's an image in which we are shown uh, an allegorical representation of Europe in the form of warrior maidens. Mm-hmm. who are standing on a cliff looking to the east. And the archangel Michael with a sword is standing with them and pointing to the east. And as you look to the east, you see this image of a large Buddha in the sky who is surrounded by um, thunder clouds and fire and flames. Mm-hmm. So, so a sort of stylized it, dragon imagery, right? Exactly. And to show that this um, 
there's a threat from the East that this Buddha is going to engulf Europe in flames. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's calling these warrior maidens to arms. Let's protect Europe from this danger of the East. And so this image became um, very well known and it became a kind of stock image of East Asia as a threat to the West. There were long before this, there were other kinds of um, ideas that Asia might be threatening or dangerous because it was exotic, because it was a, an enervating uh, place. It was the, the um, land of enervating luxuries like silk and like tea. Mm-hmm. But at this point, it becomes a different kind of um, military threat in the minds of Europeans. So, um, but it's also interesting that this picture also acquires a title very early, not just that it's a East Asian peril or a Japanese peril, but specifically a yellow one. That's right. And there is some question as to how that term becomes applied to the image. But this yellow peril is so well known that when you ask someone who is interested in contemporary cultural studies, what do they think about yellow and what is the source of yellowness as it applies to East Asians, they will almost always mention this image or this idea of yellow peril. People assume that yellowness comes either from this image or that this image is pointing toward a source. Mm -hmm. The source is usually identified as the Mongol invasions of the 13th century because there's a kind of cultural memory of the previous moment that the East was seen as a military threat, and that is during the 13th century. And there's also a time when um, a certain cultural stereotype of the East as being um, um, a kind of area of numberless throngs of people, Mongolian hordes, the idea that these people could overrun Europe and uh, destroy the institutions of Europe. There's a long tradition of that um, and connecting that to these Mongol invasions in the 13th century. But, but I'm, I'm insistent on the fact that those Mongol invasions might be considered to be a peril, but they're never called a yellow peril. That's a much, much later development. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons to include this chapter is to, to, to kind of debunk, debunk this idea that the yellow peril comes from a cultural memory of the Mongol invasions. Mm-hmm. Yes, the peril comes from that, but not the yellow peril. That's right. And, and this image is also really striking because it seems to be also just as much about uh, a coherent European identity. I mean, one of the things that, that listeners will see when they look at the book is that there are actually inscriptions in three different languages. Right, yes. uh, that are translations of this. Oh, just the English says, "Nations of Europe, join in the defense of your faith and your homes." And so, right. it's, it's really interesting from a translation studies perspective, and from you know a perspective of looking at the importance of the text and this image, and how this is actually creating in French and in German, and you know this idea of a unified Europe that's going to be right. fighting Definitely. against. Right, that was part of it. The the idea is to the, we we Europeans need to band together to fight against this threat. And it, it actually comes from Wilhelm himself. He personally signs on the image. You see his handwriting. He personally signs the image in German. Mm-hmm. And then the translations into French and English are given beside it. And he actually says, people of Europe, Folko Europas, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's band together. So, yes, there is this, this um, idea of Europe as, a, as an entity that needs to fight against the East. It's also a, a very much a religious allegory because above the maidens, there is a cross, a Christian cross in the sky. And this is meant to, um, to be, uh, as opposed to this uh, Buddha, the image of this generalized image of, of Eastern religion. Mm-hmm. So it's not just Europe against Asia. It's not just European civilization against the fire and destruction of the Far East. It's also Christianity against heathenism or whatever you want to call um, East Asian religions as represented by this image of Buddha. 
That's right. And I think it's also a great way to sort of almost wrap up the book because, again, we have this example of or this case of sort of racial identities or national identities co-creating each other. Right. Right. You have this kind of identification by contrast with um, something else, which is interesting. And speaking of contrast, you, you actually um, were almost at the end of the book, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time already. No, no, so, no but what, one of the things I want to make sure um, that we mention, though, um, for listeners is that um, one of the really interesting things about the book is how it ends. And you end with this discussion of the different ways. Um, and this is crucial, right? It's, there's no yeah. single way that the idea of a yellow East Asia was received in East Asia. There's actually quite a bit of regional um, differentiation if you look at China or Japan. Right, so, right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned before that um, yellow is important in the Chinese tradition. And I should also uh, uh, point out that it's only in the Chinese tradition that this color has um, this kind of importance. I mean, in other Asian cultures, yellow has a variety of um, significations. But if, for example, you compare it to Japan, yellow has no associations. I mean, uh, so that it's in China only rather than in Japan. So that um, when this idea of yellowness becomes codified or, or canonized by Europe, especially in this image yellow peril, I think we also want to pay heed to how these images are received um, by East Asian cultures. And we don't have a tremendous amount of evidence about how they're received before this period. For example, we don't know what Chinese or Japanese people think of Linnaeus or Blumenbach, or even a lot of early anthropology. But we do have a lot of response um, to the idea of the yellow peril. And the responses are very different in uh, China and Japan. If These are our two examples. The Chinese recall their own um, tradition of yellowness uh, as a cultural category. And in many people in China kind of proudly appropriate this idea of yellow people And they say, yes, we are yellow. I agree, we are yellow. And in fact, yellow people are better than white people. So that they have this way of of appropriating this, what is really a racial slur, and turning it inside out or turning it upside down and saying, yes, we are this specific uh, racial category, but we're not worse than white people. We're actually better. And one of the images used is uh, gold versus silver. Mm -hmm. White people are silver, but we are yellow. We're gold. Mm-hmm. So that it's a very interesting way they they take the racialization and they uh, uh, turn it into um, a, um, a term of praise or something that elevates them. Not everyone in China, of course, uh, understood it in this way, but there is an element of that. But in Japan, the idea of yellowness was almost uniformly rejected. No, we're not yellow people. We see that as a racial slur. We see, we see it as a term of opprobrium. We, we, we hate this. And in fact, it's the Chinese who are yellow people, not us. So there's a, um, a lot of variation in, in the way that they were responding to this idea of yellowness. I mean, the, the book could have gone into that in more detail, but it is, I'm not a sinologist or a Japanologist. It's not really my area, but... I wanted to show that there is a, a reaction to this idea of yellow. And, of course, if, um, if I were going to write a book about the 20th century, then naturally I would be pursuing that in much greater detail. And I would want to talk about yellowness as it manifests itself throughout the 20th century and into our own time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We've taken up a whole lot of your time, and this has been really wonderful um, to hear more about the genesis of these chapters, and I I hope readers will um, take the first opportunity to go out and read this book, because it really is a great um, contribution to, I think, not just history of East Asia, but also the history of science and medicine and art history and um, all kinds of different fields. So what, uh, what are you working on now, now that you've given us this really interesting model of how to do um, a really, I think, in-depth but concise study of the emergence of an idea that we tend to take for granted? What's, right. uh, what's next for you? Well, I've, I've gone back to uh, the study of religion. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I had, uh, previous to this, published a book on the Nestorian Monument, which was a, a way of, that Christian Westerners were looking at China 
uh, and looking at Chinese forms of religion. And now I'm specifying this somewhat because I'm looking at the idea of translating the word God into Chinese, Ah. which was uh, a tremendous um, source of controversy for many centuries Mm -hmm. and to some degree still has not been um, solved. Exactly which term in Chinese is the best term for the idea of Christian God? And I'm going to do a, a, a long survey, not long in terms of meaning the book will be long, but many centuries survey to show uh, the ways that this um, controversy keeps recurring. But once again, because I'm not a sinologist, I'm going to focus on the Western idea rather than the Chinese idea. I'm interested in what does the West assume about China and Chinese religion, and how does this affect their their um, presuppositions about translation and how to translate. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great, um, and I will urge uh, listeners to come back and listen to that interview, which I hope that we'll, we'll hear yeah, all about uh, that project when you're done with it, too. And that will be done, but uh, it's, it's a very difficult book. I'm I'm trying to find a, I'm trying to find the right tone and the right approach to it because it's it's not really a book about translation because right. it's not really a book about Chinese. Right. It's a book about the European languages. So I'm having a very hard time in finding a, a framework um, to uh, express it. But yeah, I'm, hopefully it will be done before too long. Well, best of luck with that project. Thank you again um, for taking time to talk with us today. And like I've already said, uh, congratulations on the book. It's a great book. It's really readable. And I think it's going to be a really important contribution to a lot of different fields, not just um, to those of us in the East Asian studies. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.